Welcome to another edition of Star Catcher, the podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age. Based on the top-selling book by the same name, Star Catcher. What do Jonathan Winters, Anthony Hopkins, and Carol Burnett have in common? All three of these Hollywood legends crossed paths with award-winning Hollywood writer and producer John Frederick and are featured in his amazing new book, Star Catcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy. Now, John will share some stories about all three Hollywood legends, and in the case of Jonathan Winters, a cast of many, including Maud Frickard. Maud Frickard was kind of a, a, still is kind of a salute to, she's not quite a dirty old lady, but very close. Oh, wild. (laughs) My support hose just tingled. (laughs) Boy. John, you spent time with Jonathan Winters. What was he like? Well, Jonathan, certainly kind of like Robin Williams, an absolutely unique talent. Here's a quick clip of Jonathan Winters and Robin Williams' total improv. Reverend Ainsley, uh, my hands are arthritic, as you can tell. Well, just consider him not his hands anymore, but his paws. Be ready to do this. Get a little cat tree. Don't be afraid. Say yes, yes. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I'm going to put my hands on your head now. I'm no, but like... they're in my hands. Why would you put your hand on my head? Because that's... doesn't matter my It's head. a two-shot. Go with me. It's a two-shot. <laughs> Work with me now. Work with me, demon spirit. Bobby, get the extra. Look at my hands. They're straight out. They're straight out. (laughs) Now you can serve things. Now you can serve things. Go table for tea. Table for tea. The thing that was amazing to me about him was his spontaneity. He could do five minutes if you bumped into him on the street. And I did that several times. And, and, and several times I tried to bump into him on the street because I would see him. Uh, there was a writer's conference in Santa Barbara, and he attended that faithfully. He has a home, or had a home, I should say, in Santa Barbara, and another one, I think, in Toluca Lake down here, fairly close to Hope. His talent was so unique, they kept trying to fit him into places where it really didn't go. In other words, he had to follow a script. Improvisation was his thing. He he wouldn't stay in the box. That's all there was to it. And so... When I would see him, actually, I saw him probably a dozen times, nothing serious, nothing, uh, of course, he was not, you know, he was he was on. I think I discussed that hope, hope could be very serious about things, about life and about news of the day and so forth like that. Jonathan Winters, he would give you a routine and work in his characters, Maud Frickert. He'd come up with with the darndest things you ever you ever heard. And he also did that on his telephone. He had he'd change the thing regularly. When you'd call his house, you'd get one of the characters and he'd he'd have a little riff and you, you were laughing by the time you know, it was hard to um Hard to be serious, and if you had a serious thing to talk to him about, it was hard to stay serious because he, you know you were still laughing from his introduction. You know, so anyway, the best movie I think he did was was called The Loved One. He played two parts. Uh, he played the Reverend Glenworthy, who had a I think it was kind of a cemetery, mausoleum, forest lawn kind of complex that he wanted it to turn into. Uh, 
55 and over park. And so, <laughs> and then he had a crazy brother who was kind of a, a, a ne'er-do-well. It was a perfect thing for him. There was some improvisation that he could do, and, and he did plenty. It's quite a good movie, and certainly the first part. The part was Jonathan was in was the part I liked best. Was he in the service? Jonathan was a Marine. He served in combat areas. I don't think he did combat. He was attached to an aircraft carrier, and they each have a Marine detachment. And that Marine detachment is not sent into combat because it's it's for kind of policing the, the ship itself. They would have run the brig, and they would stand sentry duty in front of, an uh, let's say, the captains or if there was an, a flag officer on board. There'd be sentries outside their their quarters, their office, and so forth. He was in the Marines, but I do not think he was. He wasn't on Iwo Jima or Tarawa or anything like that. So, but he really had a very soft spot in his heart for the Marines. And you know, once a Marine, always Marine. You're never a former Marine. And he took that very seriously. He was always good. You know, he did USO tours too. He kind of appeared. I first saw him, I was, of course, I was, gee, I was still in high school, probably, not much older than that. And he began to appear on The Tonight Show, which by then was hosted by Jack Parr. And he did a lot of appearances on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. And that was, you know, something black and white TV. And whenever Jonathan was on, he wanted to watch. And uh, he got into some problems. I think he had, probably he had depression. Again, it would be something, so many bad things happened to Robin Williams, and Jonathan mostly escaped those things, but I know he had depression, and and Williams did too, and he was treated. um, He was not arrested, but he was uh, taken off a mast of a ship in San Francisco Harbor, they kind of uh, threw a net over him, more or less. He was trying to talk to Martians from the, from the mast, and I think he, as I recall, he ended up spending some time in an alcohol rehab situation. Silver Hill, which is a kind of a upscale thing back east. I think it's in Connecticut. Anyway, Jonathan wrote a book or two. He was a very good painter, and again, Red Skelton, both of them uh, were very talented artists. The thing about Skelton, his work sold for a lot of money, and so did Jonathan's. But Skelton only painted clowns, nothing else, just clowns. Jonathan actually had some some range as an artist. He painted all kinds of things, uh, landscapes and what have you. But he was, it was a unique figure, let's face it, a very, very, very funny man. Perhaps Jonathan Winter's most popular movie was the comedy It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. That was produced and directed by Stanley Kramer. Stanley Kramer was not noted for, for comedy, let's put it that way. He did some very serious subjects that was usually he... Um, he did Judgment at Nuremberg and, and things like that. The idea of having uh, a, an all-star comedy movie, It's a Mad, Bad World, must have been quite something to put together. But, you know, they had, you know, a great cast. And, and Jonathan was, uh, I think he was probably the best thing in it. But they had it everybody. I mean, who wasn't in it? You know, everybody that had ever been, uh, you know, 
a comic in the movies got to be in it's a mad, mad world. It was successful. Whether it was a wonderful movie or not, uh, maybe open to question, but it certainly uh, it made money and uh, it satisfied a lot of people. And of course, Buddy Hackett was in it too, and he was a chip off Jonathan's block, kind of hard to write for. It turned out to be probably one of the most successful things. And Stanley had uh, Stanley Kramer had a soft spot in his heart for Spencer Tracy, for example. And so he put Spencer Tracy in that movie. I think Stanley did, if I'm not mistaken, he also uh, did Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. You couldn't get insurance on Tracy because of his health. And so Stanley rolled the dice and he put in both in both movies. And he was he played a kind of a straight part in It's a Mad, Mad World as the, uh, the sheriff. Everybody else did comedy, but of course, Spencer Tracy played it straight. He had, I think, William Demarest was there with him. It's enjoyable. I like to see it again and again. You know, I've seen it several times. There, there aren't too many other things I can think of that Jonathan was in that I can remember. Television was a better, uh, if he could freewheel. Television, it, you know, you, you've got times, you got to fill in a certain time and so forth. He would be better on, you know, like radio for Stan Freeberg or something like that. That would be more his style. The wild world of, of Jonathan Winters, I think they tried that on television. They tried several, several things, and it was always worth watching. But he, again, he couldn't be put in a box. Television had a habit of putting you in a box. There was a very popular writers' conference in Santa Barbara. In fact, I believe it's still going on, called the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. It was started by author Barnaby Conrad. Jonathan Winters was a mainstay at that conference. In uh, in Santa Barbara, every year at the Miramar Hotel, which was a wonderful old uh, landmark, the uh, the railroad track goes right through the right through the grounds, and and they had bungalows and things and some great you know, little bungalows on the water, on the beach there, very valuable property. Every year he had a writer's conference where people would come and they would get to hear some of the most famous authors, everybody from Buckley to uh, Sue Grafton, uh, Ross MacDonald, all of the crime fiction writers went there, Elmore Leonard. Uh, and, of course, Jonathan appeared there because he had written books, too. He was there every year, faithfully. My wife and I bumped into him uh, at lunch, and he did the three minutes to her. That was, uh, Gail was quite a quite a great beauty, and he obviously appreciated beauty because he, he did uh, a little routine for her and acknowledged me even, and so anyhow, the Writers' Conference, I don't know how many years it lasted, but it was a big, big deal. Anyone who was interested in writing or who had had some desires that way, you could go and be taught by people like, well, Stanley Kramer, for example, would, would be a, a person that you'd see. And, and Charles Schultz came up and had a, a, a whole hour, and Barnaby, and, and they had some just first-class people, uh, the, the celebrities from the local area like Bob Mitchum and Jane Russell and uh, Dick Widmark and 
people like that would show up. So you could, if you wanted to see movie stars, that was the place to do it. They were avid uh, listeners. You know, they'd talk about the different aspects of writing and, and agents would come and talk about what they did, famous agents. And as I say, every author you could think of would show up there. There was one other group, by the way, that uh, Jonathan made an appearance at and some of these other people. It was called the Roundtable West. Uh, Adela Rogers St. John, who had been a publicist for MGM and who was uh, very famous. Her father was a very famous lawyer, quite a swashbuckler. They would have meetings at the various um, hotels. They would go to La Quinta in the desert. They would go to Newport Country Club and the Balboa Bay Club. The Roundtable also met at the Beverly Wilshire, which is one of the two great hotels in, uh, in, in the Beverly Hills area. Anyway, Roundtable West would have all the best authors come in. I went to one with Carol Channing. It was in Newport Beach. Carol Channing and Scott Marshall. And the, the lady that ran it was nice enough to seat my wife and I at Carol Channing's table and Scott Carpenter, the, the astronaut, was also there. So that was amazing. And in the audience uh, that day was Marge Champion. There were Martha Tilton, a lot of big band singers who had retired. Helen O'Connell, you'd see her there. It was something to see. And then they would have three authors talk about their books. And afterward, they would sign them every time someone had a book came out. I think Neil Armstrong was there. Buzz Aldrin had been there. On and on and on. It was something. We we went to that every month if we could. And Jonathan was uh, quite a presence there, too. He would show up. And if he had a book, he'd come and talk about the book. Jonathan Winters passed away of natural causes on April 11, 2013, at his home in Montecito, California, at the age of 87. We're going to break away for just a moment. Then we'll, we'll be right back. From the comedy genius of Jonathan Winters to one of Hollywood's great versatile dramatic actors, who at the age of 83 just won an Academy Award for the film Father, in which he portrayed a man who was battling dementia. John, you spent a fair amount of time with Anthony Hopkins. Well, let's see. Anthony Hopkins is certainly a favorite of mine. I'm not alone. I would see him periodically at uh, meetings where some of us go to kind of get our heads straight. He was and is not particularly a social creature. He is someone that would enjoy, for example, getting in his car by himself, let's say, and driving up the coast all the way to the Canadian border and just hanging out, kind of getting the feel and getting away from people. Every time I saw him, he was more than uh, courteous. He's very, very, it's amazing, really. The best time I had with him was with a, a very close friend named Bob Palmer, who was a publicist. He was more than a publicist, though. He actually guided Tony's career. And, for example, he had to talk him into doing uh, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. It, it wasn't something he he jumped at. Bob talked him into it. And, of course, it's probably an Academy Award-winning performance that had the least amount of screen time. I've heard it was as little as 12 minutes. If you think about it, it's the story 
of the girl, the FBI agent, and what's going on with her. And Hannibal just appears here and there, and it's always kind of a looming presence. But the amazing thing about Hopkins is he has a great gift. I mean, he's played Hitchcock. He's played Nixon. By the way, he doesn't doesn't care to do Americans. He says that his accent, his American accent, he knew other accents. He can be a German. He can be Hitler. He can be, he can be Alfred Hitchcock. But he has a tough time with an American accent, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, I met him, and Bob Palmer set this up at Musso Frank's, and he was a star, but he was not a major star yet. And this would have been about 1985, 86, right in there. And so we met at Musso Frank's. Hopkins is a big fan of the history of Hollywood. I mean, he could have been probably a Laurence Olivier and stayed on the stage, but Hopkins, when he was a boy, and and when he and I would talk, talk that day, we talked about how we loved old movies and old radio, and this is what sparked his imagination. And uh he, he, he respected the stage. He ironed the stage, but he was a movie star. You know, he was a stage star when he wanted to be, but he was a movie star primarily. So we were in the um, in Musso Franks, which had been a haven. It's 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 now celebrated its hundredth year, which makes it prehistoric in Hollywood terms. Musso Franks had been a writer's hangout in in the in the 20s and 30s and so forth. And the writers, writers loved it because they could run tabs there. Hemingway was there. Faulkner lived in a hotel less than two or three blocks from uh, Musso's, which is on Hollywood Boulevard. And we were in the, in, the, in the back room by the bar. Now, we weren't going to the bar, mind you. We were there to eat. The actor Paul Douglas once said, he loved it there because it was like a New York bar. I mentioned that to Tony, and he was interested in Paul Douglas. He was interested in anybody who was in the movies when he first started watching them. He was a terrible student, and I was in the bottom third of my high school class. He was the same way. He he just, you know, it was not not of interest to him. He didn't particularly care for school. Well, I, think, I don't know how it started, but I was I was talking about what he was doing, uh, which was he was on television, doing television movies, and he was in movie movies. I think he'd just done magic, I believe, some other things that he didn't particularly care for. And then he would do television movies where he played Hitler, he played the Lindbergh kidnapper, uh, Hauptmann. You know, he loved character roles like that. He, he just fitted so well into character parts. But it was unique in those days for a um, movie star to do television. Really, I think probably Joseph Cotton did a, did a buffering commercial, and that was the first thing. You could never do that. And all of a sudden, you'd see Laurence Olivier selling Polaroid cameras. And, and But Tony would go back and forth. And a matter of fact, as we talked that day, he was going to London to open a new play called Pravda. He had not reached megastar status yet. That came actually, I think, with uh, Silence of the Lambs. He was a he was a, a very respected actor, and he was in many many great films. But uh, 
they were they were kind of art house films, some of them. Anyway, so I were talking and we're talking. Once you got him opened up, he was a fascinating conversationalist. He was quite amazing, and so I, I was just I was there to listen. So at some point, I wanted to talk to him about how, why he went back and forth between television and the movies, and so I said, now. What is it about English actors? And he reached across the table and grabbed my arm and squeezed tightly and said very clearly and rather loudly, Welsh, Welsh. I'm not an English, you know, he did not want to be called an English actor. And the Welsh, like the Irish, you know, good old Celtic blood, are very, very sensitive. And as a matter of fact, as we speak, I think he's in Wales now. Uh, I think he's painting or something, you know. He wasn't at the Academy Awards this year because he was in Wales painting and kind of just kind of um, touching base back home. Anthony Hopkins won the 2021 Best Actor Academy Award for that brilliant portrayal of an elderly man suffering from dementia in the film Father, despite the fact that the late Chadwick Boseman was the overwhelming favorite to win the Best Actor Award for his role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Surprisingly, the award went to Anthony Hopkins, and also surprising was the fact that Anthony Hopkins was not there to receive the award. He was not, he was not present. Uh, he was in, in Wales, as I said, painting. He was kind of shocked because he expected it to go to someone else. For actor goes to Anthony Hopkins, the father. Well, here I am in my homeland in Wales, and at 83 years of age, I did not expect to get this award. I really didn't. And um, very grateful to the Academy, and thank you. And I want to pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman, who's taken from us far too early. And again, thank you all very much. <laughs> I really did not expect this. So I feel very privileged and honored. Thank you. Glenn Ford said something about Ernie Borgnine, who was a character actor who became a star. And Glenn Ford said that Ernie Borgnine can be Ernie Borgnine all his life. Well, Tony Hopkins can be Tony Hopkins forever. And there'll always be parts for him. Anyway, we had a very nice lunch. Very pleasant. We then got out. Uh, we wanted to go across the street. Bob Palmer had to do something with Dick Van Dyke, and so he went off. Wanted to go, and I did too, to Larry Edmonds Bookstore, which is across the street. Musso's is at Cherokee and Hollywood Boulevard, and, and Larry Edmonds, a very, very famous bookstore that goes way back. And again, a lot of writers would hang out there. It's Hollywood history. You could get Posters, lobby cards, all these things. It's just, it's probably been around for 50, 60 years, maybe more. And so we were walked across the street. And it's this is, uh, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, and they're close to uh, Hollywood and the Vine, and there are a lot of tourists around. And so we're walking down the street, and I noticed that no one came up to him, no one recognized him. And I said something. I said, Tony, they don't know who you are. And he said, I don't want them to. So I got it, you know, that it's famous. Movie stars are famous, you know, for putting on dark glasses and 
Elizabeth Taylor used to put on fright wigs and things like that. They called attention to the to celebrity more than they disguised the celebrity. However he did it, he could be Mr. Everyman. You just didn't notice. He's only 5'9". He's not a big man. And it was just easy for him to fool all these people. And I regarded that as one. And we went across the street. We went into that bookstore, which is peopled by fanatic fans of the movies. That's all the, That's all they get in there. It was as crowded as the sidewalk. Same thing. Nobody even knew who he was. He just was someone that was there. I thought it was one of the great performances of, uh, of Anthony Hopkins' life, The Invisible Star. And, of course, I did write about that in my book, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. To walk down Hollywood Boulevard with uh, Anthony Hopkins was uh, to live out a fantasy of mine. Who doesn't want to be seen with Anthony Hopkins? And the funny thing was, I was seen with Anthony Hopkins, and no one knew it. Back in 1987, Anthony Hopkins was awarded the high honor of being knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Yes, it is an honor. And, of course, I noticed that, for example, uh, there's a golfer who was knighted. Paul McCartney has been knighted. A lot of actors were knighted. Olivier was Sir Lawrence, and then he became Lord Lawrence. John Mills and others, Ralph Richardson, of those just in front of Anthony Hopkins, were all Sir Ralph and Sir this and Sir John Mills and so forth. And actually, John Mills had been offered a lordship and turned it down. He said, "It's Sir is enough. <laughs> but the funny thing about Anthony Hopkins is he doesn't want to be called sir. You know, you don't address him like you'd address royalty. Anthony Hopkins, for whatever reason, prefers not to be accorded that honor, which he's entitled to, certainly in England, and would rather be called Tony. And so his friends call him Tony. I did too, of course. It's uh, um, maybe it's a reality check for him. I mean, he's he's pretty humble. He can be, you know, he's a pretty humble person. Maybe it's you know, reminding himself that he's really only Anthony Hopkins from a little town in Wales, you know. Fortunate we have him here. And it actually broke up his second marriage because his wife preferred living in England and Hopkins preferred living near Los Angeles. He has a place in Malibu now, but uh, he lived in Los Angeles and, and has been here almost since he came to the country. It, it was something that actually even broke them uh, broke them up, although they, they were, as they say, they remained close friends. But she was English and wished to live there, and he had become Americanized and wanted to live here. That's the way of the world. For 11 seasons from 1967 through 1978, CBS Television was the home to one of America's most beloved ladies. From Television City in Hollywood, it's the Carol Burnett Show, brought to you by your local quality Buick dealer. Wouldn't you really rather have a Buick? John, you worked on an interesting project with Carol Burnett, and I believe you met her right after you came to Hollywood when you were in the Navy. One of the great things about coming to Hollywood and working as a Navy uh, public information officer, I got access to free tickets. This was at a time when the Carol Burnett show was in the top 10, and it was 
in the top 10 probably for a long, long period. I got to go down to CBS probably a half a dozen times or more. I had, you know, almost front row seats to the show. And she would uh, come out. She'd bring out Harvey Corman and Tim Conway and introduce them and introduce anyone who was perhaps a star. And, of course, lots of stars turned up on The Carol Burnett Show. But the interesting thing about it was she had a um, question and answer thing she'd do with the audience. You know, she wanted to take questions. And she, she would introduce the cast and tell them what the show was going to be about. And so she'd ask questions, and, and everybody, everybody loved Carol Burnett. I mean, it's, it's hard not to. She was very good, very gracious when she'd do the question and answer thing. And they had an interesting system on the Carol Burnett show, which required a lot of intricate staging because there were dances and uh, musical numbers and changes of costume and this, that, and the other thing. So what they did is they taped the rehearsal and then they taped the regular show. And what would happen is probably a lot of times you'd get pieces from the rehearsal that went into the main show because they were better and funnier. And so it was kind of a, a business of protection. It was a pleasure, for heaven's sake, a pleasure to just to go to CBS and watch that show. She was, she was great. Carol Burnett tells the story of how she got her start and why she pays it forward. I was at UCLA in a musical comedy class, and our professor was going to grade us on scenes for our final at a very posh black tie party. And it went over very well. Then I went to the hors d'oeuvre table, and I'm stealing hors d'oeuvres. I'm putting them in my purse, and there's a tap on my shoulder. And I thought, oh my God, I'm busted. <laughs> and it was this gentleman. He said, so uh, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, someday I hope to, you know, have enough where I can uh, go to New York because I would love to be in musical comedy on Broadway. He said, well, I'll lend you the money to go to New York. And he said, there are stipulations. Never reveal my name. And if you are successful, you must promise to help others out that you believe in. She also gave us a hand. We did a, um, a telethon for the National Council on Alcoholism. One of the people who appeared in it was Betty Ford. And I, I did an interview with her for that. We wanted to do it in L.A. and we wanted to do it someplace convenient. So we actually we went to Carol's house. And she opened her home and allowed us to film Betty Ford there. That week, I think, I played golf with Joe Hamilton, who was, of course, her husband. So, you know, it, was, uh, it went quite well. A little later on, we were doing a film on women and alcohol, and we had no host or hostess. And obviously, I had tried to find out from various doctors who work in the field, well, what about women and alcohol? What about that? And they would all say, as the men would say, beats me, you know. So what I did eventually was to hire an all-female crew, grips, gaffers, director, a cinematographer, everybody, the lady who and so there were no men around, no men in the credits. Actually, uh, Jan Clayton, who had played Lassie's mother and was a friend, it's kind of a, a shame for me to say this because I had promised Jan that when we did a picture that 
involved women and alcohol that I would have her host it. But there was another close friend of mine, a golf partner of mine named Dr. Jokichi Takamini. And Joe Takamini was a kind of a Beverly Hills character, although you know, he said he didn't want to be a millionaire. He just wanted to live like one. So he lived modestly, but he squired some of the prettiest girls in town and married a congresswoman and uh, was the doctor to the stars. He was Nat King Cole's doctor. He was he ran the alcohol unit at St. John's Hospital, a very famous hospital in Santa Monica. So Joe called me knowing that we were doing this movie and said, I, I can get Carol Burnett. What do you think? And am I going to renege on my promise to Jan Clayton? Well, I did what any Hollywood producer would do. I went for the big star and I felt a little guilty ever since. She did a wonderful job. She was actually struggling her daughter had a drug problem at the time, and Dr. Takamini and a lot of people were working with her. That's a sad story, you know, the daughter. Uh, Carol was having problems with addiction in her family. Of course, she came from uh, actually an alcoholic family, survived that. Then her daughter, who was probably a teenager and so was uh, heavily into drugs and, and had a real problem, so Joe Takamini was uh, their doctor, and uh, they they worked with her, and uh, there were other famous people, and she went on television. She she had some problems, and you know uh, that was all a, a great drama playing out, and must have cost Carol Burnett a lot of sleepless nights or sleepless or anxious moments. Eventually, Carrie got clean and sober, and was doing very well. Um, uh, as a as a uh, performer herself, she had some real talent, and a talent as a writer, talent as she could have done anything. Unfortunately, she got cancer and died at a, at a very young age in her thirties. And Carol wrote a book about it, and that was a, um, just a sad thing. But as far as Carol working with us, I tried to stay away from that set. I have a picture of me um, kind of leaning in a doorway and. Carol's right next to me. They are discussing it. All the women are discussing the next shot and so forth. It was quite successful. You couldn't find a nicer person. I, I don't know anyone who dislikes her. She's still around, and I hope to see her again. I won't say I'll, I'll work with her again because I'm more or less out of the movie business and into the writing business. But to see the show and then to see her and, and to have her in a film that uh, didn't have my name on it because but it had my company's name on it. That was worth uh, worth a lot. Carol Burnett was in a number of movies, including Pete and Tilly, uh, Alan Alda's Four Seasons, and a movie called The Life of the Party about the story of an alcoholic woman named Beatrice. Uh, Carol's talent was more suited to television. She wasn't exactly a, a leading woman, but, I mean, she played, uh, what, Mrs. Annigan and Annie. She was in uh, in a lot of other. She did a film with Walter Matthau. There were several other films that she made, but they weren't really for her. They, they great fame came from the television show. She did quite a few movies. Her feature films were fun and good, but not necessarily memorable. You don't think of Carol Burnett as a movie star somehow. She was a television star. She was in movies. 
and she did movies with people like Walter Matthau and Alan Alda and, you know, uh, and others. And she was in Annie, which was a big thing, played Mrs. Hannigan. But movies were just not, not, they weren't for her. She was really cut out for that television show. The Carol Burnett show was just, you know, it was on as long as I could remember. They had reunions after that, and then they had, you know, the, the whole cast would come back, and, and they had a, you know, a show about a show about the show. So that was her great media, and she's written several books, too. You can read more about Carol Burnett, as well as countless other Hollywood legends that are brought to life in the new book, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. It's available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. I'm so glad we had this time together Just to have a laugh or sing a song Seems we just get started And before you know it Comes the time we have to sing That wraps up this edition of Starcatcher the Podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age. As told by the man who was there when they said it, John Charles Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit. And is the author of the best-selling book by the same name, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, which is available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, there's something that you can do for us. Number one, you can subscribe to our podcast or follow our podcast. Number two, leave a review. Let us know what you think. It's important to us. And by all means, number three, share this with your friends. Now, in the next edition of Starcatcher the Podcast, author John Frederick will reminisce about his encounters with Ernest Borgnine, Dick Van Dyke, Barbara Eden, and Shirley Jones. And we'll also find out why John Frederick wrote the book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy. Until next time, I'm Neil Scott. Hooray for Hollywood. Because it makes me feel